all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, March 6th, 2023, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eero. This is a species we've been wanting to do for a long time, and I'll let Katrina introduce it for you. So as the resident female fish fan here, I'm very pleased to introduce an all-female fish to help us kick off Women's History Month, a fish named after the all-female tribe of warlike women in Greek mythology. Our fish of the week is the Amazon Molly. And joining us is Dr. Ingo Schlup. He's a presidential professor of biology at the University of Oklahoma and the director of the International Stock Center of Live-Bearing Fishes. Welcome. Welcome, and thanks for the invite. Very excited to be here. We are very excited to have you. Okay, so these fish are definitely smaller in stature than the Amazonian women depicted as Greek sculptures and on pottery. So, Ingo, before we dig into the really obvious burning questions about this all-female fish, we're hoping you can help us visualize what it would be like to have this fish in your hands. How big is it? What kind of shape? What kind of color? And of course, if we're going to handle a fish, we want to get our hands wet beforehand. So yes, please help so us. they're small. Don't be disappointed. They're really <laughs> small. They're three to seven, eight centimeters long. And you've already said it's an all-female fish. So males are usually quite ornamented and mm-hmm. pretty to the human eye too. This is an all-female species. They look very boring and uninteresting, <laughs> but it's really their biology that kicks in. So all right, all right. So. It's an all-female fish. How did that happen? Yeah, so sexual reproduction, which basically means that at every generation, we undergo meiosis for producing our gametes, the sex cells, eggs and, and females, sperm and males. So that pattern is so prevalent. Pretty much every metazone has that. And so this is actually where I came into this field, how I got interested in this fish is one of the big questions was and still is, what's the evolutionary advantage of having recombination every single generation? And what are the alternatives? And so people have studied asexual organisms that do not have meiosis for a long time, and there are quite a few, but in vertebrates, this is extremely rare. And what makes the Amazon molly Pacilia formosa so particularly interesting is we do have some very close relatives that live in the same habitat under the same ecological conditions that are sexual. So what we can do with Amazon mollies in this bigger context of evolution of recombination or evolution of sex is look at a species that is asexual, the Amazon molly, and then compare it to a species in the same habitat that is sexual like the sailfin molly in Texas or the Atlantic molly in Mexico. Hmm. So using the comparative method to address one of these really big questions in biology always seemed really fruitful and interesting to me. What types of habitats do the Amazon molly females and then the related fish, what do they prefer and what do they need to survive? Yes. So they have mainly coastal distribution. They do occur from roughly Tuxpan in in Mexico to Brownsville, Texas, and then a little north to the Nueces River. And then they're thought of moving northward through the intercoastal waterway. They have been reported from Houston. In terms of biogeography, what's interesting is that they're 
actually really limited in where they do occur if we assume that one of the major factors restricting them to a certain area is the availability of host species, then they could be distributed much wider, but they're not. So there's more than just availability of suitable hosts. And we've done some ecological niche modeling on this, and we're finding that the northern limit is determined by the lowest temperature in the winter, and the southern limit is determined by a mountain range, the Sierra del Abra, which around that area reaches the coast and prevents southward movement of that species. Hmm. They're really generalists. They're colonizing all kinds of man-made structures, ditches. They don't require high water quality or anything. They can tolerate really high salinity. They can tolerate hmm. low salinity. They're pretty generalist. They eat whatever they can find, so they're not very picky. We're talking like mosquito larva-sized items? Definitely, and detritus. I mean, they're mainly eating detritus and then whatever hits the water surface or aquatic insects, any kind of invertebrate that you would find in the water column. It sounds like an easy aquarium species. I'm guessing that's probably why they're so popular, some of these species. They're really easy to keep. And um, they're fun to watch. They're surprisingly aggressive, but um, I don't think they're really popular in in, uh, hobbyist circles because it's all females. You always have to have a population or another species of males to breed them. These are posiliids, right? Yes. Posiliids, life-bearing fishes, relatives of guppies and, you know, sore tails and just like like those, sailfin moles are actually pretty popular as as pet fish. Yeah. So we've talked about gambusia on this show, and I've never really worked with these live bearing fish a ton. So it'd be great if we could just talk about their method of reproduction generally. We're talking about this as an all-female species. Why do they need to mate with a male at all? Okay. Life-bearing fishes in general, they're not fully life-bearing. The females in the process of giving birth, the eggs essentially rupture right when they're leaving the female body Mm -hmm. through an organ that we call the gonopore. And so it's technically ovovivipary, but who cares? So they're life-bearing, and that requires internal fertilization. And so the males have evolved a transformed anal fin, just like in Gambusia, and this Structure is called a gonopodium, makes it really easy to distinguish between males and females. These transformed anal fins are very obvious. The gonopodium helps males to transfer sperm into the females. The details of that are a little bit understudied. It's just difficult to see this. And then the females use the sperm to fertilize eggs inside their ovary. Um, Females have amazing capabilities of selecting sperm. They seem to be directing sperm. There's some beautiful work coming out of a lab in Padua, Italy, uh, looking at that. So there's a lot of female choice going on inside the female body and also some outside before the males copulate with the females. So normally in like, say, pure sailfin molly, the female is going to have these sperm potentially from one, maybe multiple males inside her. And then those will go, they'll fertilize a haploid egg, the genetic material will come in, they'll they'll be incorporated. Now you have a diploid cell that then starts to proliferate and duplicate and multiply until, you know, fish with a new genetic code. But what happens in the Amazon, Molly? Why isn't this material incorporated? And do they have a full set of 
genes or are they haploid fish? Well, let me give you a longer answer because this requires some background. So Amazon mollies are a hybrid species. So they originated between 100,000 and a million generations ago. We're fairly certain in an area that's now Mexico, not too far away from modern day Tampico. And so what happened was there was a female Pacilia mexicana, the Atlantic molly, and a male Pacilia latipana, the sailfin molly. They made it, they had offspring together, and there were a number of immediate changes. I call that the lottery hypothesis. And so during this hybridization, what it looks like based on all the data that we have so far, the eggs went from being haploid to diploid. That's a major evolutionary step. The Amazon mollies went from having meiosis to not having meiosis. They're completely amiotic. So no recombination whatsoever. They're clonal. And what they retained was the sperm dependency. So even though they don't have males in their own species, they require sperm. And so they have to convince males to mate with them. What I want to add in terms of evolutionary background is this. Having an event, a single event that leads to all these different changes is extremely unlikely in evolution. I'm not saying that this is not how it happened, but I'm really curious what a potential pathway to this would be. And so that's what we're currently working on in my lab. It's like, what are potential pathways to this form of asexuality coming from sexual reproduction and then moving into asexuality? And it's, it's quite yeah. fascinating. So when the sperm makes contact with the egg, what happens to it? Does it just all the genetic material inside get eaten away? Is there some enzyme that destroys it or what happens to it? That's what we think happens. It really seems like the sperm and egg cell fuse and then the male DNA is somehow inactivated. This is not something that we know in detail. And that's mainly because Amazon mollies have internal fertilization and we can't work with the eggs or do anything at that level. We're basically forced to just deal with the consequences. Um, this can be a really nice tool for research. The fact that the sperm enters the egg, but then the DNA is not used. Uh, that's extremely unusual, And but we don't know the mechanics of this. What's in it for those males of those species? Are they getting duped or is there some advantage that they afford from being involved with the Amazon molly? So I think many of them are getting duped. And keep in mind that males are typically not thought of as being very choosy. But in this case, it's really easy to understand that male mate choice should be adaptive and beneficial mm -hmm. to males. So the situation for a male is there are two female fishes swimming around. One is an Amazon molly, one is a conspecific sailfin molly. So the male has to decide which one of these females should I mate with? And what that requires is some form of species recognition. And then beyond that, there are other criteria that males use with whom to mate or not. But theoretical work shows that it's really difficult for perfect recognition to evolve. Okay. So the females look a little similar if you have a sailfin female next to an Amazon female. Absolutely. They look pretty similar. And it's even worse with Atlantic mollies from Mexico, where they also exist. And Amazon mollies, they're really hard to tell apart. I was actually reading about some research, and maybe, Ingo, you can confirm or deny this, but it basically showed that 
females of other Molly species are trend conscious. So it was saying that they're more likely to mate with a male if they see the male mate with an Amazon Molly. Is that true? I can confirm that. That's that is my own work, and oh, okay. yes, it's true. And that's, is there a benefit to males of mating with Amazon Molly's? And I would say most of the time they're just really likely to make mistakes. But there is a mechanism for a benefit, and it's a bit indirect. But we call this mate copying. So Amazon Molly's don't have their own males, of course, but males from the two sexual species that they interact with mainly, they can kind of improve their own attractiveness to conspecific females by mating with Amazon mollies. So they're mating with the wrong species. In that sense, they're making a mistake. But subsequently, for whatever reason, they are more interesting to females of their own species. And we've shown that in cell phone mollies. We've shown that in Atlantic mollies. And so that's mate copying. And that's a benefit to males of mating with Amazon mollies. I feel like this needs to be a reality TV show or something, the lives of these fish. It's very it is, interesting. It, it seems like there's a pretty low cost from a male's perspective of getting it wrong. And then, yeah, females, it seems like of all species, you know, fish or not, you know, they like a man who can get around. Not necessarily that does in the human case, but that has the ability to, you know, be selected by lots of different females. So it's interesting that you're saying that it's low cost to the males and, I I often argue against that because the okay. you have to look at the whole package. I mean, males are spending a lot of time trying to mate with Amazon mollies. If they do mate with them, they invest into sperm and everything. They're taking yep. a huge risk. They're being picked off by predators. High stakes. The super visible, attractive male in, in a shallow ditch somewhere in, in South Texas. It's a risky strategy. So males are actually spending a lot of resources time, they're taking risk into mating. And so they should be selective and they should actually avoid mating with Amazon mollies. Yeah. How long do those males live and how many reproductive events can they have? Or do they have a pretty short life? They, I think in the field and in, in nature, they live a few months. Oh, they wow. have this interesting phenomenon. Some of them mature really small and early. So they can be functional males at around two centimeters or sometimes less. And then some of them go up to six to eight centimeters, but it takes a long time to grow to that size. So they grow to that size. They look like females for a long time, but they're not. And then they mature into these really gorgeous, large males that we find in nature. But those are rare in the population and they may live up to a year. Females, a year, maybe a year and a half. And of course, in in our stock center where we take really good care of them, they live much longer, yeah. but they're basically in, in an environment where they have no predators and no natural enemies. You mentioned just kind of a handful of other vertebrates that do this, and it seems like it's like fish, reptiles, amphibians. How did this happen across kind of some of those species and why isn't it common in some of the warm-blooded species like birds and mammals? So mammals seem to be incapable of this kind of reproduction. What the current idea or knowledge is has to do with methylation patterns in the egg and sperm cell. And in mammals and also probably in birds, it's, it seems to be, the system seems to require 
sperm and egg cells to form an, a functional embryo. There's one case of parthenogenetic turkeys, <laughs> and that has been tried to, to be established in the poultry industry, but it didn't really work. And I'm not aware of any recent work on this system. <laughs> so you're right. There's a big difference between fishes and amphibians and reptiles and that's the evolution of the amnion it's kind of the something that encircles surrounds the egg cell and it's kind of interesting evolutionary speaking all organisms that are pre-amnion fishes and amphibians when they show asexuality they are all sperm dependent so they all need some kind of trigger to start embryogenesis in reptiles they don't need sperm to trigger embryogenesis, but we distinguish between two phenomena. One is natural parthenogenesis, which we find in whiptail lizards or a number of other species that naturally are parthenogenetic and clonal. And this rare form of parthenogenesis in species that are normally sexual. Komodo dragons typically reproduce like any other vertebrate, and they have males and females, and they mate and everything. But in rare cases, when females have been without males for a long time, at least that's what it seems like, they can turn on a rare form of parthenogenesis and then lay eggs that sometimes also in several species of snakes then lead to viable offspring. That's crazy. So that's highly unusual, though, and it's slightly different from the phenomenon that, that we work on. It's fascinating. Also pretty cool, right? Yeah, super cool. Okay. And then just speaking more broadly, when I think about reproduction and this recombination of genes, it seems like one of the most valuable things is that it makes organisms at the population scale highly adaptable. You know, we talk on the show about diversity not being a friend of efficiency, but it is the best friend of adaptability. So you're talking about this species has been around for, you know, what would you say, 100,000 years? Yeah, that's kind of the Roughly. Lord. Has the genome changed at all? Or is the habitat that it's living in like extremely consistent? Because it seems to me that you don't get these asexual reproducing species because, you know, if things change, that population is not going to be right. able to adapt like the sexually reproducing ones are. Yes. Yeah, I was going to ask the same thing. How are they doing? How's this species doing? I mean, obviously, my work in the field, that's a, not even a blink of an eye in an evolutionary timescale, but they seem to be doing fine ecologically. And the genome that's been sequenced and annotated by American and German scientists, they look very carefully for accumulation of mutation, which is what you predict when you have no recombination, and they couldn't find much. There really isn't anything. So... We have this odd organism that doesn't have any meiosis, but it's not suffering from the consequences, it seems. In terms of the folks who first discovered this was happening, I mean, this was the first vertebrate, right, that was yes. discovered to do this. This was back in the 1930s. And I believe the exactly. scientists' names were Hubs and Hubs. I presume they were like a married couple. But how, like, how yes. did they figure this out? What kind of ways do you observe oh, these types of so fish to figure like this out? So, yeah, in the 1930s, Carl and Laura Hubs, very famous ichthyologists, they were basically given, or maybe they collected Amazon mollies themselves, and they're really keen observers. And so they figured out that from this particular type of female, these only produce female offspring. And they did some experiments on this and basically established Amazon mollies as a clonal species. 
And so they published this in, I believe it was 1932, in the nice journal Science. And then this was the heyday of vertebrate biology. And so we speak of parthenogenesis if eggs develop into fully viable offspring without any external trigger. A couple of issues later, if you read the comment section, the letters to the editor, they're basically saying, no, that can't be. There's no such thing like a clonal vertebrate, parthenogenesis in fishes. That can't be basically saying the hubses were, were inaccurate or whoever made a mistake. But it turned out to be true. So they discovered it. And it's been, as you said, the first asexual vertebrate to be described. That's cool. I wonder how they felt. We just had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Nick Wegner with Noah talking about the OPA and how he discovered in the gills that they, they're able to have basically whole body endotherm. And he kind of celebrated right. that. But I just wonder, like, once they figured this out, I just wonder how they feel. I'd like to put myself as a fly on the wall back then and kind of see yes. oh, what, they, would, what they did. I would have loved to know, but um, Clark Hubs, their son, didn't talk about it. Clark basically was the ichthyologist for Texas. He also worked a lot on Amazon mollies. So what an amazing lineage here. Yeah, that's cool. One interesting aspect that Clark introduced into the literature is he calls them sexual parasite. So because Hmm. they require sperm from species that are not their own species, there's a cost associated with males mating with Amazons and no or very limited benefit. So that makes it a parasitic relationship. I have a a fun question for both of you, perhaps, and maybe I'll answer as well, but it's a would-you-rather question. So if you were a male fish, would you rather be a species who mates with an Amazon molly or a (laughs) deep-sea anglerfish, and why? (laughs) That's an interesting question. So deep-sea anglerfishes have the problem, most of them never find a female. So they divergence, basically, (laughs) and they never mate. But when they mate, they're really successful and they attach themselves to the female. And so I don't want to, well, you guys figure out what kind of relationship you have with your partners, but (laughs) my wife is pretty independent, so she wouldn't need that. On the other hand, think about it from a population level, really. If you're coming from a species or a population where you have to deal with these two types of females, let's assume that the ecological niche is limited, which most of them are. So let's say you have a carrying capacity of a thousand fishes in a water body. And so for the sexual population, if 500 of these fishes are asexual females, that's a lot of habitat that that your own species cannot occupy. Ecologically speaking, that limits you in what you can do. And, And it has all kinds of cascading effects none of which are well understood in Amazon mollies, but just in general. So I'll go with anglerfish. Okay. How about you, Gay? I would have to, (laughs) you know, I'm not thinking about this uh, population. I'm thinking about this as just me. I wouldn't want to just become a little pair of fishy gametes attached to a woman. I want to be able to go around and, you know, if I'm a male, be mating with my own species, also mating with the Amazon mollies, just getting it on all that I can. So I would definitely be the male of a sailfin molly, just, you know, sowing my wild oats with every species I come across. 
I'm always curious how people find their way to a certain fish or a certain group of fish. How did you get interested in the Amazon Molly? So for me, I was growing up in a research lab at the University of Hamburg, and my mentor and supervisor, Jacob Parzifal, had already a topic for my diploma thesis, and he wanted me to work mm -hmm. on cave fishes. And okay. at that time, stupidly, I thought cave fishes were boring, and I wanted to have my own project. Later, I learned there that cave fishes are actually super interesting, and I did a bunch of work on cave mollies. So I visited a friend in a different town in Germany, in Munich, and he's a geneticist, a great mentor of mine, Manfred Schardl. And so Manfred showed me his fish room, and he pointed at some fishes, and he said, these are unisexual all-female Amazon mollies. <laughs> I was like, like, what? What? That does exist. And so I got hooked right away. And I begged him for a couple of individuals. I established my own stocks in Hamburg and started my research on this. And that's been what I've been doing ever since. Long time. I want to hear a little bit more about this international stock center that you have for the live bear and fish and what the purpose of that serves. So the stock center that, that I'm directing is it's a collection of species that we provide for colleagues that need to start their own research population for whatever question. We do provide these fishes for free. Whoever requests them just pays for shipping. There's quite a bit of demand. Not every lab can afford to travel to a foreign country we're limited in terms of numbers and we're not shipping fishes in the winter because it's too risky. Yeah. But um, I think I've already made a couple of colleagues happy. Other than like asking questions about the history of the Amazon Molly, what advantages does having a clonal fish provide researchers in a lab? What kind of questions can you ask when you're using a clonal species like the Amazon Molly that you couldn't with other species? Yeah, so the big one really is evolution and maintenance of recombination. So why does everybody have meiosis and these guys do not? And so theory predicts that they should accumulate deleterious mutations. They don't. Theory predicts that they should be under heavy pressure from parasites. They're not. We looked at that. They're doing fine. Theory predicts a lot of different things. And so you can directly test theories that have to do with this big question of evolution of recombination in the lab. And um, that makes them really useful. And the one question that I started with and that I'm still working on because it is not resolved and it's still really fascinating is the question of why do males from a different species made with these females. Like, what's up with these males? And one of the things that we've kind of tried to unravel over, over the many years that I've been working on this is male mate choice strong enough? Is this potent enough to regulate the ecological coexistence of these two species? And our tentative answer is yes. There's more work needed to be done in this field, but that's one of the questions that we can address using a clonal species. Um, fishes are so speciose and they have evolved pretty much every possible way of reproducing that we can think of. And so we have you know, male parental care, female parental care, biparental care, male choice, female choice. It's all there. And so you can address pretty much every question that you may have as an evolutionary biologist using fishes. So that's, I think that's really powerful. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. Are you able to just kind of list quickly some of the other asexual fish out there? Yeah, so a really common one, which is a problem species here in the U.S., is the Crucian carp. They're asexual. They're also gynogenetic, so this mechanism where you need sperm to trigger embryogenesis. There's another species complex within the life-bearing fishes. They're called Pisiliopsis. They're more in northwestern Mexico. There are some really interesting asexual species in Portugal. That's more like a species complex. And in Eastern Europe, another species complex named Cobitus. So not super common, but essentially found in a wide variety of taxonomic groups. That's interesting. And Guy, do you want to, now that we've learned about this species more or this hybrid, do you want to revise your would you rather answer? Or are you still going with the Molly? Oh, I'd still be a male Molly. I, okay. I don't like being <laughs> held down, tied down. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the risks of, you know, potentially being duped out and dying and letting my lineage fall off if it means I can swim around independently. If I was limited to where I could only reproduce, again, not really even reproducing, if I could only mate with the Amazon mollies, then yes, I would change under those circumstances. <laughs> but I took the question as being that I, I have the potential to to mate with the Amazons and then also the sail fins or Atlantic. You might get picked off by a bird though, so who knows, yeah. I'd take that risk. Okay. We'll get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially those very uncommon all-female species like the Amazon molly. And just for kicks, think about if you'd rather be a molly or an anglerfish and let us know. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>